You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Thank you for joining this evening. Uh, Tonight, we've got uh, a little bit of a different format on the show tonight. We do have a special guest who is on with us for the first few minutes. Her name is Emily Northrup, and she works for the Home Ownership Division of the Washington State Housing Committee. And she's going to give our community an update on the Home Ownership Program that is in place. So we're excited to have her on so that we can chat with her. And then following her, uh, we're going to dive deeper into what we are all anticipating, uh, a decision from the Supreme Court this week on affirmative action. And so I've got my co-hosts on with me this evening as we break that down. But let me introduce in Emily Northrup. She's here with us this evening. Uh, Emily, welcome to Heartbeat this evening, and we're excited to have you join us and uh, talk with our community about what's up <laughs> with the home ownership program. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me, Cindy. It's a pleasure and really excited to tell you all a little bit about the Homeownership Assistance Fund and the good work we're doing to try and keep, uh, you know, Washington homeowners in their home. Okay, I'm going to let you take the wheel. How's that? You can just give the community an overview about what the program is. Um, Maybe uh, tell us, are people using it? Is it still accessible? What do people need to do to be able to access it? Um, so forth. So I'll just let you go ahead and talk to the audience. Great. Thanks. (laughs) So my name is Emily Northrup. I'm, as you said, I'm a grants administrator here in the homeownership division at the Washington State Housing Finance Commission. And along with my colleagues, we administer the homeownership assistance fund. Uh, In the year that we've been open, we have been able to reserve almost $30 million to help approximately 1,500 Washington homeowners uh, maintain their homes after they've experienced difficulties in their finances because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So what the Homeownership Assistance Fund, or HAF, does really is three things. Um, The first thing we do is we provide funding for the Washington Homeownership Resource Center's hotline, which provides free resources, information, and referrals to any homeowner in Washington state, regardless of how much money you make or what sort of difficulties you're facing. You can call uh, 1-877-894-4663 and talk to a referral and information specialist who can get you in touch with someone in your area who can help you with whatever your issue is. So that's the hotline. The other thing it does is it provides funding for our statewide network of HUD certified housing counselors and civil legal aid attorneys. And those folks are the ones who do the real heavy lifting here in this program. They can act as a homeowner's advocate. They can help you um, collect all of your information, assess your situation, advocate on your behalf to your servicer, and then help you put an action plan into place uh, to help you preserve your home. And then the other thing that it does is it can provide grants of up to $60,000 for individual homeowners who are eligible for the program. So in order to be eligible, we are looking for folks who are Washington State homeowners who are behind on their mortgage payments, uh, property taxes, homeownership, or condo association dues. Uh, we're looking for folks that are you know, behind on their primary residence, 
Um, and this would be a single family home, uh, a small duplex or a mobile home. Um, it can also on a rented property. Um, and then for folks, we're looking for folks that are at 100% of their area median income and a housing counselor can help you determine if you meet those eligibility guidelines. Um, some things that the program's not for are for purchasing a home or for um, doing improvements or rehabilitation on a home. And, and unfortunately, this is a program for homeowners who are behind. So we're not help, we can't help renters and we can't help you make forward payments. Um, but if you've had difficulty with homeownership related expenses because of the pandemic, uh, please call this number, the Washington State Homeownership Resource Center hotline. Again, that's 1-877-894-4663 and get in touch with somebody who can make a referral to a housing counselor. These folks are fantastic and they're they're really there to help. So people utilizing this like are people utilizing this program and how long when you reference, you know, uh, COVID related um, reasons for people being behind? I think we have all seen at the federal level that a lot of the COVID programs are going away. What you're saying is that still at play here? How much longer is that going to be in place? How far behind do people have to be on their mortgages in order for them to access it? So for folks, we're at least one month behind all the way through, you know, to folks that are potentially facing foreclosure. And so if your situation has reached that point, again, it is really important that you get in touch with the housing counselor. These folks are HUD certified and they're going to be your absolutely your best advocate. Um, and yeah, people, people are accessing the program. And so, like I said, we've been open since uh, July 1st is the anniversary of program opening. And so in that time, we've been able to reserve almost $30 million to help cure homeownership related um, delinquencies and financial difficulties for approximately 1500 Washington households. Uh, we've been able to get funding into every county in the state. Um, so Eastern Washington, Western Washington, urban and rural, we found that the need is, the need is immense. And so, um, we have worked really hard to try and get this message, uh, you know, into into the eyes and ears of folks that maybe aren't the first ones to hear about mm -hmm. federal relief programs. And you know, you do make a good point that a lot of a lot of COVID relief is going away, but there's still, you know, um, there's still a, a sizable portion of money here to help folks here in Washington maintain their homes. And so, okay, that is good to know. You know, it's hard to get this kind of information out to people that they know that there is resources available. Uh, so it's good that we hear that there's still a, a good chunk of money allocated for it. So do you expect the the window for accessing it to be, or how long do you expect this window to be open? We anticipate at this point, the program to run through uh, summer of next year. Oh, so, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. and uh, the state was allocated about $170 million. And so we've been able to um, to get, you know, $30 million into the hands of, of homeowners here in Washington state. And so what that program does is we pair you with a housing counselor who takes a full assessment of your housing situation. They're gonna talk to you about um, your mortgage payment, your interest rate. They're gonna call your servicer and see if there's anything we can do to maybe modify some of that. Mm -hmm. um, and if if half is the best option for you, then that counselor is going to walk you through the entire application process. They're going to hold your hand, help you fill out the application. Um, they can talk to you directly with the underwriting folks. Um, and this is a grant, so there's no obligation to pay it back. And then once you're approved, 
Half sends the money directly to the servicer and makes sure that it's applied appropriately and timely to your account. So for the homeowner, there's no need to handle funds. There's no nothing. You, we just need you to call the hotline, <laughs> get in touch with an advocate whose professional passion is to advocate for homeowners and help folks maintain homeownership and build that generational wealth that's so important, and then apply to the program. And and we have seen, you know, we know that COVID-19 did not hit every community the mm-hmm. same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in terms of lost wages or jobs that, you know, went away and didn't come back, we know that that impacted Black and brown folks more right. than it did other communities. And so right. we're at a point now where foreclosures are starting to happen, jobs haven't come back. and right. We know, in addition to all of this, that homeownership rates are not equitable. And so for for black and brown homeowners, it is so imperatively important to help those folks keep their homes. Um, well, let me ask you another question. Easy, you know, you know another it's kind of a dicey question to ask, but, you know, so many people are struggling. And so, you know, people have to rob Peter to pay Paul. And so what happens if after today? Let me ask this different. Is there a threshold of income or anything that people have to meet in order to qualify for it? Because I'm going to put myself in the shoes of somebody right now who's listening to this and saying, oh, well, maybe I'll just take a pause for now because I'm struggling to make it for July. Can I take a pause for 30 days or 60 days to help me? Because we have this whole mess of health insurance issues going on with the, you know, the rates came up again. Like we, so our communities are struggling to try to juggle all of these different components of how do we keep it going? So if somebody did not make their July payment after hearing the show, would that still make them eligible? I can't you know, speak to anyone's specific <laughs> circumstances, but I will say that if you're behind on your, if you're having a hard time meeting homeownership related expenses, I would bet that you have a COVID related financial hardship. Um, in the last three years, I have failed to meet someone who has not been impacted in a significant yeah. way because of COVID-19. And so yeah. if you're struggling to, if you're having to pay Peter, Rob Peter to pay Paul, then you're struggling because of COVID. And this program is designed to help folks with that. And so that again, the housing counselor can help you take a holistic view of your finances and get really get your head around what your options are. I mean, it's, this is not just counselors aren't just here to help, you know, um, qualify folks for grants. That's a huge part of what they're doing with half, but it's also to look at the entirety of your situation and find out if there's maybe other options that we can add in and how we can help make you successful in homeownership for the long term. And so um, I can't really sing their praises enough. These folks are. Yes, just I, I don't think many people, I mean, I don't, I hadn't heard of this until you reached out about, yeah. you know, coming to do this. So this, it is a great um, and it is good to know that there's still funding available and, and that it's scheduled to go through next year. So I Absolutely. encourage our viewers who's listening. Um, I actually somebody has come to mind as you're talking that I need to make sure I get this information to them. So this is wonderful information, Emily, for us to have. So we appreciate. Thanks so much. Any, for that. Yeah. I'm is there Anything more you want to cover while we got you here? Sure. Um, I think that it's really important just to remember that uh, help is out there. While the program does does have income limits, so under 100% of the area median income, 
there is help available to folks regardless of how much money you make. And so um, financial assistance grants are not the end-all be-all of housing assistance and housing counselors are really here to advocate for you as a homeowner. Um, these folks are passionate about helping folks build equity in their homes and maintain the equity that they already have. And so I really, really, really wanna implore people to tap into this network of, of professional advocates. Um, so all of our housing counselors are HUD certified. Uh, they've been trained at, you know, not to national standards and uh, they are qualified to help you assess your situation. They can keep your information safe and they'll help you every step of the way through the half application process. So to get in touch with one of them, the best way to do that is to call the Washington Homeownership Resource Center hotline at 1-877-894-4663 or you can visit us online at washingtonhaf.org. Awesome. Fabulous information. Thank Emily, you so thank you for coming on. Uh, and sharing that information with us. I'm sure our community appreciates it. And please reach back out as you have more information or if you want uh, to come advocate for this again, I'm happy to help push this information out. Great, thank you so much, Cindy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Fabulous holiday weekend. You too. I'm gonna take a quick commercial break and then we'll come back for the rest of Heartbeat this evening. Hi, I'm Besa Gordon from Converge Media, Hits 106.1, and back to Besa on Fox 13. And I'm Buki Gates from Baseball Beyond Borders. And we are here at T-Mobile Park, where on July 7th, they will host the very first ever HBCU Swingman Classic. That's right, Besa. Ken Griffey Jr., the kid, has rounded up 50 of the very best ball players from HBCUs from all across the country, from schools like Jackson State, Grambling, Southern, FAMU, North Carolina a t Alabama State, and many more. It's literally the all-star game before the all-star game, right? Exactly. And the fact that the very first HBCU Swingman Classic is happening right here in the Emerald City is a big deal. A big deal indeed. And it sounds like a whole lot of black college homecoming bugs. You already know what it is. Don't miss out on this historic opportunity to see the very best of the best black college baseball players right here at T-Mobile Park on July 7th. Tickets are on sale now at allstargame.com. That is allstargame.com. See you there. COVID-19 hurt my income, my health, and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in. They talked to our lender and saved our home because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHAF.org. The new COVID-19 updated booster provides the best protection available right now. So don't wait. Stay safe this summer and get your updated booster today. To find a free vaccine provider near you, go to kingcounty.gov forward slash vaccine. One in every 500 African-Americans in the U.S. suffers from sickle cell disease. One in three African-American blood donors is a match for patients with sickle cell. One, appointment to donate blood with the American Red Cross can help save a life. Will you be that one? Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood today to schedule an appointment at a location near you. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Wasn't that a lot of helpful information? 
I was, I'm glad Emily came on with us and was able to share that. We definitely have got to push that through our networks and help our community to know these resources are there. Hey, I, I want to introduce in um, my co-hosts that haven't been on with me in a hot minute, but they're here with me this evening because we wanted to have a conversation about the impending Supreme Court decision uh, due this Friday around affirmative action. And so before I dive into my thoughts on it, let me welcome Joy Stanford and Aaron Jones in with me this evening. I hadn't seen my friends in a long time. Hi, ladies. How are you guys this evening? Oh, my God. I haven't seen you, Aaron. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to I wanted to talk about what we all are anticipating happening this week, um, which we're all anticipating the rollback of affirmative action. And I wanted to start by talking about maybe what it's not or what people believe it is and what it's you know aimed to do and where we think, you know, Aaron, you're definitely out in the lane of education and what's happening there. Um, let's just talk about what you're hearing about this whole issue, the rollback. What are your thoughts about some of this? Are people still bracing for, uh, do you, what do you think, Karen? I mean, I, I think for sure people, especially black and brown people are bracing for it to be overturned and we're no, not gonna have affirmative action anymore. Um, I think the biggest problem is people don't understand what affirmative action is really. Mm -hmm because much like woke, it has been interpreted to be something that it's not actually. And so I think so much of my work has been helping people understand what it actually is and um, on how it actually hasn't harmed white people. In fact, it's helped white women more than anyone. <laughs> Affirmative action has helped white women both in education and in business more than anyone it's helped. And, and so I find it really ironic that white women are part of the group of people that are arguing the most about affirmative action when y'all have benefited, but it's kind of like the women's rights movement, right? Um, it's just so interesting how people can take a piece of the truth and, and turn it on its edge. And then suddenly folks are willing to believe a lie that actually has benefited them. So we can turn against each other instead of all of us working together for the betterment of all of us, we'll take a little piece and twist it a little bit. And so, you know, when it comes to the Harvard case, what I find really interesting is, man, legacy candidates to Harvard overwhelmingly benefit from Harvard admissions. So it's being pointed at you, black people in affirmative action, you're causing our students to not be able to get into Harvard. No, rich people who donate a lot and who went to Harvard 30, 40, 50 years ago. No, that's the people that are the enemy. It's not us. Um, so let's get real and honest about it. And and folks are not being honest. So rich people who are legacy and athletes are the two biggest beneficiaries with admissions right now at places like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Stanford. And um, it's not black folks. We're still not in huge numbers there. And um, but let's, let's, talk yeah. about, let's talk about what it's not, because how it has been misconstrued is that affirmative action is to give unqualified black folks. <laughs> right. That's what it goes down to. When affirmative action is really about increasing representation, both in uh, business, um, in government contracting. So there's a lot of money that comes out in the gover government contracting and yep. then access to education. And so even when you look at 
you know, I haven't looked at recent numbers. My The most recent data point I looked at was when I ran for office, which was five years ago. And the data points here in Washington state were, uh, let's see, it was initiative 200. It got rolled back by the Tim Iman thing and has perpetuated through Washington state that all of us black people are just trying to get in and we're unqualified and dumb and we're just getting a handout, hand it to us. When in fact, the numbers showed that from 2000, I can't remember the years now, 1995-ish when it went into play here till um, when Initiative 100 passed. It started at like 19% of people that were having access, brown and black people having access to contracting and jobs. Mm -hmm. And it had literally gone down to one point something percent. So to your point, Erin, affirmative action really is a vehicle that white women have used to prosper. And now in classic format, they are advocating for something to be rolled back that will harm them. And I've never been able to get inside the psyche of why this goes on because they're creating harm to themselves and their families. And so I don't get it. But this whole notion of we're just getting a handout to us as black people um, is ludicrous. Joy, what are your thoughts about this too? I always go back to what does, what makes up racism, power and privilege. Mm-hmm. When you start to take that power away, that's when people panic. And it's not like we're going around wielding our power because, oh my God, we've gotten in. We're at Harvard. We're at UC Berkeley, UC Davis. Oh my goodness. It's like, seriously, we're just happy to have the opportunity <clears throat> and to have access now. And now they're going to take that away. The data point that I found most interesting was in 1965, there was 5% undergraduates, Black undergraduates in the UC system. In 1965 to 2001, when affirmative action was instituted, the, that those Black undergraduates doubled. I can't imagine going back to that five or under percent. So what are you telling while we're all out here? And I say we all, because in some fashion or form, the three of us, including our other two hosts that aren't with us tonight, are out here telling black and brown kids, you can go anywhere, you can do anything. You just have to work hard. You just have to, you know, just go in, just be yourself, be authentic, do do it. And now they're going to get turned away. Why? Because they're black? Why? Because they're brown? And then the interesting part about looking at this particular issue was Asians, Americans are against this. And I'm like, when did that happen? Where am I? Where have I been? You know? And so I'm like, wait a second. What is happening here? Why? So I always feel like power and privilege, you start to take any amount of power away from said uh, group of people who have amassed it and who have been there for a long time. You start to pull that away, they start to panic, and all of a sudden, it's not about that. For me, to me, I mean, my son got into four different schools, um, most of which are historically white schools, and they end up going to Boise State, which in looking at that, I was like, uh, and most of the black kids that were going to Boise State were athletes. 
So you're you're good you're good enough to be recruited as an athlete, but you're not good enough to be recruited as a student. And you know, I I like to think that my son got in on his merit, on the fact that he had community service, he had the grades to get in, he had athleticism, but that's not what he was about. He wanted to get in for a specific program, kinesiology. He got in. He graduated in his four years. Now he's starting his doctorate program. I'd like to think he got into the next school, University of Utah, based on merit, not on the fact. But at least he's having the opportunity and access right now. And that's what I'm appreciative of. So I, I look at this as power and privilege and you start to take that away. And this is when people panic and start thinking, oh my God, what's happening? So. Can I go back to something that um, Cindy said earlier, though, about um, this is the other thing that I hear a ton is we're just giving it away to people just because of their skin color. And I, I shared this with Cindy last night when we were talking about this topic. Um, I graduated number two in my class at one of the best private schools in the world. My dad taught there, so we didn't pay for that school. But I, man, I worked my behind off because I knew I needed right? to if I was going to get a scholarship to come to America. So. I got accepted at Princeton University and then they didn't give me any money because they didn't bother to look at my financial aid forms to see that I was a teacher's kid. They assumed I was the rich kid from that private school. So I got $1,000, even though I graduated with a 3.99 GPA. I took 11 AP classes. I was a triple varsity athlete. I was captain of all three sports. I was MVP of all three sports for two years in a row. I played two instruments in the band and I ran the largest model United Nations in the world. And I remember very clearly when I accepted um, a spot at the sister school to Princeton, Bryn Mawr College, on my second week on campus, so it's my second week in America, this white woman walked up to me and she said, you know, you're only here because we need a ton of you. I will never forget that conversation. And I had never heard of affirmative action before, so I didn't know what she was talking about. Because you didn't grow up in this country. You weren't here. I I didn't know what that was about. And she said, affirmative action. We have to have 10 of you in order to, for the government to pay the bills at Bryn Mawr. And I'll never forget that day ever. Flash forward, my son got accepted at Harvey Mudd. And if you don't know what Harvey Mudd is, it's an elite STEM college um, right outside of LA. You have to have a really high GPA. You have to have great SAT scores. He got one wrong on the SAT. He took 11 AP classes, just like his mom. He's smarter than, way smarter than me, way smarter than me. But his sophomore year of college, one of the professors had an email leaked to the public and it said, we have lowered the standard at Harvey Mudd in order to accept more black students. Oh. We've lowered the standard here in order to accept more black students. Now, Harvey Mudd at the time was the fastest diversifying college in the country and they'd worked really hard. And my son, instead of getting pissed said, I'm gonna host a town hall meeting. I'm gonna have all my stats, my personal stats. I'm gonna lay them out on the table so y'all can see. I'm more than earned my spot here. And I'm black. So, Aaron, I think what you're describing is what the issue really is. Because the issue is not that, I mean, yes, the uh, academic institutions get federal funding and have to meet thresholds, but the white lash of what's happening is because of the excellence that you're describing. And the question that I, you know, have is, 
um, because we as black people, because we as black women have made substantial progress in our academic levels. In fact, we have surpassed what the requirements have been and all the jobs and everything. And so would you guys agree that this is all about the fact that we've made progress? Yes. And they want to claw back our yes. progress because we can now say, you report to me. I don't report to you. Right. And they move the goalpost. And That's they what they're doing. The they're moving that goalpost. They are they are doing it purposefully. Yes, I would agree and with that. And I want to offer it to you because I watched this in Bellevue and Cindy, you live in Bellevue, so you probably witnessed this too. So there's a whole dynamic around the Asian community too, and not the whole Asian community. So I'm not speaking broadly about all Asians. There is a particular dynamic, um, especially those that come from Japan, Korea, and China who came here with a lot of education. So they came to the U.S. Um, they came with the intention of sending their children to a place like Harvard and Stanford and um, I heard this when I worked with Bellevue School District. Um, they didn't want equity. They didn't want um, any programs that talked about race because for them, and I heard parents say this, I heard parents say, those black kids, those black families don't work hard. We work really hard. And I don't want to overgeneralize. So it's not all Asian families saying this, but I watched, I watched a large group of Asian families in Bellevue fight against the equity policy for the same reason. Do you because want to know we want to make you want to know how many doors I knocked and heard that at the doors? Um, that is real. And yep. there was a lot of resentment and um, they would not listen to the facts that I was trying to help them to understand. It is the same toxicity going that has been put into community. So I have continued to say to people, what they don't understand when you talk about black people when people say cindy why are you you know you're you know all people have like we but you have to understand every community around us has been poisoned towards us and That's so right. what we discuss is not a white issue necessarily although there is a, a white lash because of it it's all the other community we've heard the same things out of hispanic communities they think you know because hispanic people are being pushed down to the bottom too and so this I would just call it kind of like this infighting that goes on between communities of color because colonized America has programmed everyone to believe that black people are inferior. And now that we're proving or have shown, look, no, why do you think, and look, what's, why do you think student debt um, is being resisted so hard? Because guess who it's going to help? All the educated people who are the educated people, us. And so they don't want black women and black people to prosper. And so, you know, I have to believe that, you know, when you're talking about these schools, I mean, I can only tell you about when my own son was admitted into Stanford and the Bellevue community, I heard lovely comments about, well, my child got into Brown because of his academics, right? Without, I mean, so this assumption that our kids just need to shut up and dribble as opposed to being educated and do well in school and their ignorance of not understanding that to get into Ivy League, you have to actually qualify academically to get in. And so that notion that somebody could actually be smart, um, who has melanin in their skin, That's in right. my son's case, very little, but he's still, you know, so this whole notion of inferiority is there. And I don't know what we do about it. What I am 
watching is the pattern. Like my last several shows have been about the black women that get torn down, the highly educated, the people who have excelled, they get torn down by that system beneath them who don't want to see us succeed. I, I definitely agree with that, Cindy. And in, in doing some reading about this, this also upends the federal programs at the HBCUs. And so what does that do if those programs go away? And these are programs within the HBCUs for kids who have those barriers or have had those barriers to use once they are there in the colleges and universities. So what is that? What it's just at every step, you know, we're being pushed back or that or that goalpost is being moved. How do we fight against that? And and you know, now that we've got this or do very we conservative believe, do Supreme believe, Court. I mean, do we believe maybe this is just a naive question to ask, but do we believe that you, you know? Uh, academic institutions, business, they have to have seen the benefit to what they've been doing. Would they seriously like roll it back and just go back to any Harvard or Stanford or any of them would never want to have everybody that is thinks alike and talks alike. In a, yeah. They wouldn't because you'll never progress society that way. So I'd have to believe well, we've that. we've got seven states that already don't do it. So Florida being one of those. Well, look states. at what's coming out of Florida right now. Hello. I mean, you can tell he Idaho has being great another education. one. Uh, yeah. So it's it's a little surprising. Some of the when I look this up, you know, which states don't. But um, now it's just going to be kind of this blanket blanket um, policy, blanket law, and um, I just fear for our kids. For you know, what do you tell those seniors? What do you tell those kids who? worked so hard. Um, and I, I liked how they said, we want to have a, what do they call it? Colorblind policy. You can't have a colorblind policy anymore. It's called social media. Somebody on that little committee is going to look up my kid's name or your kid's name, and they're going to be looking on social media. Oh, oh, they're a kid of color. Oh, they're a black kid. Oh, they're a brown kid. What's that say? So you can't have colorblind policies anymore. It's just not, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. Then I think the other reality is that, um, unfortunately, this is true, that color, because of redlining, color drives where kids get to go to school. And it drives where, what schools kids are able to access AP, IB, college in the high school, SAT prep, right? And so that was the whole point of redlining, was how do we make sure that the zip code that kids come from doesn't harm them? How do we incentivize kids who are coming from places that may not have had the right kinds of courses to get into a Harvard right. or a Yale or Stanford, right? And so now when we go colorblind, like are we willing to look at zip codes, right? I mean, I think I think schools that want to do the right thing will, will choose to do that anyway, right? Yeah. But it leaves out. And so here's here's my push though against this. And here's why a part of me actually is not worried if affirmative action goes away because there's a part of me that because I was questioned about my abilities and I, it was, it became very clear to me early in college that maybe I didn't deserve, people didn't think I deserved to be there. But I wonder if that doubt in me, I mean, it, it almost caused me to take my life if I'm real, if I'm really honest, 
it was the first time in my life that anybody really doubted my potential. So I did not doubt my potential in my academic acumen until she sowed that seed in me. And, and I can say as someone who's been an executive in school spaces, there were lots of times where I was told for OSPI, I was, it was told in a room before I got there, I overheard this. She's only here because we have to have a person of color on cabinet. I overheard two white men saying that out loud as I was preparing to walk in the door on my first day on cabinet for the state superintendent. And that sowed a seed of doubt that took me probably a year to overcome. I don't know that I've ever overcome it. I think there's this piece. So, so here's the other thing I wonder, those schools that don't want to recruit students and admit students for the right reasons, I don't know that we want our children there, to be right. really honest with you. Right, and so I hear way too many stories from black and brown students, from queer students who are in spaces. They've gotten there because of their color in a way. They're, they're qualified, qualified first, but also got there because, and then the school is not doing anything to support them. So in my mind, as a mom, who's just put three kids through college, part of me is like, you know what? I would rather our children just get into the schools that deserve them, the schools that are gonna take care of them, the businesses that are going to take care of us. That's I mean, where you, I want us you know, to be. Erin, you're making the argument that you and I have not aligned on per se in the past, but you're making the argument for why schools, why parents need choices for other options of school and education. That's right. Because That's right. this, this issue is real and looking at, you know, um, let me say this. We have an elected official who runs the education committee here in Washington state, who has literally said live on my show that um, they're dumbing down education requirements and everybody doesn't, isn't ready or doesn't, you know, want to critically go to think, critically think is that yet yeah, her words. And so I don't think that was the specific word she used, but that's what she meant. The black Correct. and brown kids could not critically think. And so to this point, this was Santos, right? Tomiko Santos came on the show, said it, and she's in charge of the education. She said program. it out loud on the show? Yes. I don't, I, I, can't, I can't remember. Oh, I, oh, I got to go it. back and listen to that one. <laughs> yeah. And, and so here we are, we have somebody who is supposedly representing all the students who isn't. Number one, we have a problem in our education here in Washington state with funding going to other options for brown and black children. Parents are reacting to this. How are we as Washington state now positioned or prepared to deal with this issue if it happens? Are we going to actually finally put some money behind some of these other organizations that are doing private education for brown and black kids? Why should our parents have to put our kids into that system that you're describing of that they're the only black one and there's a backlash and they're only there because of their skin color. Like that, the fact that you're somewhere near my age, Erin, and you still remember it, like these are scars these children have to live with for their entire life. And it impacts us. It impacts us. And why do we have to show receipts? Why does Erin's son have to say, I'm going to lay this out of why I belong here? Why did Erin, I'm going to lay this out of why I belong here? I worked my ass off, period. That's all that needs to be said. I worked hard. I did what was asked of me. I took classes that I didn't need to, but I did them. That's all that needs to be said or done, and period. 
you are that person, you get in. But why do we have to show all the receipts? Mm -hmm. Joy, you you and I went back in 2019, you and I went back to that Phyllis conference. Do you remember that? We're all of that. Yes, I do. Right, all those elected officials were- And I I I think the twist was we had that elected official on and then a week or two, or maybe a month later, you had those kids on from Mm -hmm. that school where they were specifically talking about black and brown kids and those kids, the one mom was like, my kid blossomed in this school. Whereas she was in this all girls school in Seattle and it was traumatic for her. It was not a good space for her to be in. But then she got to this school and she's like, what? Mm -hmm. You know, and all of a sudden you're like, and then people want to say, no, on charter schools, no. I am all about public schools. I'm a public school kid. I love Same. public school teachers. I, I have nothing against that. What I have against is parents coming in and telling my teachers what to teach. I have against mm-hmm. coming in and whitewashing history and erasing and eliminating uh, information because mm-hmm. we don't want certain kids to feel a certain way. I'm sorry. That's not how it was when I went to school. Your kids are no special. You don't want them to be sensitive, then give them all the facts. Let them critically think. Let them critically ask questions of a teacher. If the teacher can't answer, then have a discussion about it. That's the kind of robust education, I think. A lot of teachers, I'm going to call you out, Elise Yaman at Gig Carver High School. I'm going to call you out, Mr. Bill, at Peninsula High School, where they're letting discussions go on in their history classes, in their art classes about people, about all kinds of people um, and letting the kids critically think together and collaborate together and disagree together, but still be able to walk out of that class and still be able to play sports together, eat lunch together, you know, do band together, whatever. Um, and it's okay. And I think that's that's what we're getting in the way of. And, and that's... Go ahead, Aaron. That's why. So I don't. I don't think there should be no charter school. So I just no. want to get clear about that. I don't. So Cindy, I'm not <laughs> anti all charter schools. What I don't want, though, is we let the regular public school off the hook. My job as someone who's run for state superintendent is I want to make sure that all of our public schools are doing what Elise is doing. I happen to know Elise too. Elise, I hope you are hearing the shout out. I'm gonna have to send you the link so you know, girl. We see you out there. Yeah. But Ann Hawkins is another one. There are teachers doing really amazing work. And what happens if we push everything towards charter schools is our our, our, our rural Black students who are all alone, I'm not even going to name some school districts that I've been in, in last week, where the two or three or 20 Black students are I just being you. harmed. I see you, Erin. They're I being see you. harmed, right? Um, hey, what? So I, I didn't hear you. They're being harmed. There are mm-hmm. Our rural communities don't have mm-hmm. capacity to have a charter school. And mm-hmm. so I'm not saying no charter schools. But what I am saying is if we put our eggs into that basket, what happens is only our large urban centers will benefit. And our Mm -hmm. our kids that are in rural communities cannot benefit because there's not capacity. And so I don't, I don't think all charter schools are bad. But I think if we, if I let myself push everything that way, it causes harm to kids who don't have access to charter schools. And so um, I just think my job in the world is to push on our public education system, our gen ed teachers to do a better job for our black and brown children. So the pattern, the trend to that, I hear you. Um, I think the whole teacher issue is a whole nother layer 
right, of um, having teachers, you know, the the candidate pool uh, that they can't bring in enough qualified, but the teachers also don't want to go into those kind of toxic environments where they have to shoulder the burden of trying to educate everybody under the sun about what does it mean for brown and black children. Um, so they're, they're, I'm just going to say migrating away from the public system too. And so, you know, my only argument has been, we all, I'm a, I'm a public school kid too, but we have, and I hear you about the rule. Like, I think we need to start, we as a state, we as a country need to start trying to solve for those kind of problems because especially when they're ro ro um, rolling this back, then we are, cre we're just, amplifying the problem that these or these charters have been trying to solve. Now, uh, we've had parents come on too and talk to us about, you know, what's happening in their own houses because of all of this, right? This, the trauma that brown and black families are experiencing over getting our kids educated. Um, and this is before we've even talked about business, what's happening in the business world with affirmative action, right? Jobs, access, contracting, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the education piece is significant and um, it's going to be fascinating now to start to watch what begins to roll out as a result of this. Don't you think it's, I, I find it very insidious because this is how it starts, kind of undercover, kind of small. We're just going to infiltrate just a little bit school boards, fire commissions, county commissions. And so first you start that school board level. And now all of a sudden it's, oh, it's, 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 it just, you just start bringing it upwards, upwards, upwards. Now we're at the college level and now the Supreme Court has this case and, you know, and that's where it's going to start. You give them that power again, power. Here we are power. Now we can go back and say, we don't need to be doing any kind of DEI. We don't need to be. They're already saying that in districts like where I live here in Gate Garber. We don't need to be doing that. South gets out. We don't need to be doing that. We don't need, we don't need to be doing that. Yes, we do. Did you guys? Yes, we do. Did you see a Parna Ray's post where she said in the DEI space, it should not be, the I should no longer be inclusion. It should be integrity. Hello. <laughs> it's like, right. So if we're, if we're going to start, if organizations are going to be held, I mean, I don't have confidence. They've rolled back a lot of their funding for DEI initiatives and um, have slowed up a lot of that work. Um, and they're openly talking about it and not having budgets to pay. There are, we check the box. We check the box. Yes, we check the box. And so now we're going to ride low right. until we're forced to have to do it again, right. if ever. Right, right. And it, I, I applaud the work you're doing, Erin, but it's, I see some progress, but I don't see enough and I don't see it fast enough. That's how I feel about it. You know, yeah. we, we take two steps forward and then we have to go back five. You know, I mean, you and know. I'm com and I'm committed. It's kind of like running. It sucks. It sucks. And you just got to keep running. Like I, I just, I keep running. I ran this morning. I ran three miles this morning and my arms hurt because I lifted too much yesterday. And I was like, I got to run because man, our babies are dying out here. So I, I got to just keep training for the race and, and just keep showing up in spaces. And, and if I can save one kid, it's kind of like that, that starfish analogy. I just got, I got to keep throwing starfish into the water. And if I can get to somebody who has a shovel, then we can shovel a bunch in at one time. And, 
I can't focus on what's not going well. I have to focus on the places that are willing to do the work. And that's just where not everybody gets my energy. I don't allow everybody to get my energy. I will only go where people are willing to do the work authentically and with integrity. And so I appreciate that um, comment about integrity. So this morning, a, a person who's really noteworthy in our state in education sent a group of black educators. So we're on the text thread, a picture of this week's conference with um, principals and superintendents. He sent us a picture of the room where he was in. So this man happens to be a black man and he sent a picture and we could count on one hand the number of people of color across the state. So this is the state conference for principals, assistant principals and superintendents. And you could count on one hand the number of people of color. And to be honest, I didn't see one black person in that room. Not one black person did I see in that room. And he said, and yet his quote was, and yet some of these school districts got awards for their equity work. Exactly. And feel in a certain kind of way. And, and we, as Washington State, fired our first equity, our chief equity officer, right? So, so much for equity, right? Like even in the, even in this state, even in, in this progressive state, to not be able to see anybody black or count on one hand that, yep. right? So fundamentally, the work that needs to be done is off the charts and how do we how do we do that when we hire people in i don't know if you heard my show two weeks ago where i said you know we go out with headhunters to hunt for the black women to lead we hunt them to bring them in and then we hunt them when they get in and so how are we going to do this and expect them to do it in 24 months it cannot be done and with shackles on their hands and Um, standards that are not equitable across leadership um, to not even have this level of an understanding or they do or they find the reasons why let's just pick her off let's pick her like this has gone on my entire career watching what's happening to the women who get in positions of power who are trying to drive the change forward and as soon as they start making progress which is what we're facing with this Supreme Court thing this week, right? We're making progress. We we look at the numbers of it's black women that are trying that are asking for help with student debt relief. It is black women who are out here mobilizing to elect these Democrats who are not standing with us and behind us. And so what are we gonna do? Like I mean, I think that's the million dollar question right now. We have another nasty election coming up. Everything's being rolled back. We're probably not going to get the student debt relief. Student loan payments have to start back up. What do we do in a situation like this um, as individuals who we can't afford to give? Like Aaron said, how, how much of our energy can we put into this? And how, I mean, should we continue to stand behind these folks and help them get elected? I mean, well, I'm, I'm headed after this to meet with Marilyn Strickland, our congressperson. So, yeah. I mean, that's so one of the things that my husband has taught me over the last seven years since I ran for office is, honey, you only have six feet of influence. You got to use your six feet of influence well. So you can't change the whole world, but you can change the six feet of influence you have. So tonight, as soon as we're done here, I'm headed to meet with Marilyn Strickland because I, I have to use my six feet of influence. And she invited me to an event. So I'm going to an event and I will support her as best I can. There's another black woman running for office in Federal Way. I just donated to her campaign. I went and spoke at her event. I think we have to do what we can where we are. 
and not get so caught up in like we're not going to change what the Supreme Court does, but what can we do right where we are? So those right. of you watching, what can you do right where you are? Every twenty dollars that you donate to a campaign absolutely matters. Um, could you walk and pass out flyers in your right. community for somebody that's good? But right. watch their record. Are they actually really good? And one of the things I challenged some young people this week, and Cindy got to be on this call. Um, so young people, I need you to start investigating who are the people running for your school board? Who are the people mm -hmm. running for office in your community? Get educated and don't just read their website. Go to their Facebook account and their Instagram account and their Twitter yep. account and see yep. back to integrity. Does their website match who they actually are on mm -hmm. social media? That's right. And young right. people can do that research. Even if you can't vote, you can help us older folks who maybe have jobs and all that stuff. You can help us by doing some research. So if you have a young person in your house, a really great summer project would be having them look at your local candidates and check out their website and then check out their social media and do those two things match. Yeah, I no, think that's I, powerful. That's powerful that's advice. That's yeah, that it is. And I, I like, were you going to say something more, Joy? Yeah, I was feeling like I was, you know, pretty taxed, but um, we had this group start here in Gig Harbor, the Moms for Liberty, and I just couldn't stand on the sidelines. So one of the moms started a Moms for Peace, and we are all about it. We're going to have shirts. We're going to have bumper stickers. We're going to walk in every parade they're in. We're going to be in, um, which has also activated our Gig Harbor for Racial Justice group. Um, which has also activated our Indivisible, Gig Harbor Indivisible group. And so that's the, to me, that's the kind of activism. And we are really pushing for those young people to join us because that is where it starts. Younger and younger folks are running for office. This is what I'm seeing in the 2023 um, races. We've got some younger folks. And, and by younger, I mean under 30 or just over 30 um, running for office, and those are the folks that we need. We need that 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 group of voters to be activated. Obama did it. I think we need to find that secret sauce to get them activated. But it starts at the local level, and 2023 is local level elections, and there is no off year. We need to get that word out of our narrative and vocabulary. There is no off year for voting. You must vote every year and you must vote well and you must do your own homework. And if that entails you going and checking out, like um, Aaron said, all of the social media feeds, then you do that because there's folks out there who are claiming to be one way and then you look at all their stuff and they are a complete different opposite of what they're claiming to be. And I'm, I'm done with it. And so are you, um, are you guys also catching the, um, I'm just going to call it the beginning. Maybe it's the middle of the takedown of the vice president. Did you see the articles that came out about her this yeah. past week also? Um, so as we're giving advice to people and young people, you know, there was this whole article that came out about basically that she's incompetent, right? The black woman playbook. Um, she just, you know, happens to be elected as the vice president and yet she's incompetent. Um, but that teardown is starting to happen and the infiltration of um, narratives are going to be increasing through the social media platforms through. Um, so it's going to be particularly um, important, it's not even the right word, that we really, you know, people begin to understand who is really who. Because it, you can't hardly tell anymore with 
you know, these bots and the things that are coming all over the feeds. Right. And right. Um, yeah, next year, towards the latter part of this year and next year, it's going to be beyond gross and ugly now. Well, with and, and she's being torn down, not just because she's a black woman, but because people are already assuming that Biden is not going to make it through the next term if he gets elected. So she would end up in that seat. And that's the threat. The threat that is, is not her as a, as a vice president. Power the threat is her as and privilege. Right, yeah. right. Power yeah. and privilege. And we yeah. can't have a black woman, oh my God, ascend from being vice president to president because our we can't, are you crazy? We can't have that. So let's tear her down now. Let's tear her down now and tell you all the negative things. While every week I get her newsletter and she's hard at work. Like she's like Patty Murray. They work hard. We might not always agree with them, but they work their asses off. And that's all I care about. You're working for the people. You're doing your job. So. Final thoughts, ladies? I just want to encourage people. You know, one of the things that I, I just talked to a group of bankers today about this. Choose gratitude every day. Like we have to have some, some practices in our lives that keep us sane. And so I practice gratitude every day. I practice being courageous every day. And I just press pause every day. I think we are grinding and running so fast that we're not able to be our full healthy selves. And so have some practices that allow you to show up as your best self because we need you. We need each one of you to be your best self right now. Yeah. Thank you, Erin. Joy, you have some final words? Self-care. Self-care is very important. We can't do what we are doing right now unless we're taking care of ourselves first. Um, I just joined a boot camp. So whatever that looks like to you, read. Um, I like uh, what Erin said, uh, practice gratitude, saying something good about yourself, about your family, about who you are, about what you're doing. Um, but self-care first and then going out and doing the hard work. Um, but always remembering who you are um, first. That's what I would say. I think my final thought is to leave with our audience um, is to make sure that when you hear and read about some black woman and what she's not doing or what she is and what she did and all that, everyone's first question needs to be, is that really true? Because most of us as black women have all experienced the harm, the tear down, the narratives, the um, persecution of our character. Uh, and it comes from every direction in the workplace. So pe people, to what Joy was saying earlier about power, when people want to take power, they will tear down any black woman they see that has ascended. We could talk about this for hours and we will continue to talk about this. As one of our listeners was saying tonight, we have to stay informed. We have to continue to talk about what all these issues are out there. We're holding our breath for Friday when this decision comes out. Um, in the meantime, every one of us stays active. Thank you for joining uh, me and Aaron and Joy this evening for this conversation. We will look forward to seeing you all next week. And so have a good evening, everybody. See you then. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents.
Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.